cleverly, donks. Look at us now, tip to tip. This is our life. This is our passion. That's the spirit we bring to this show. I'm Luke Thomas. I'm Brian Campbell. This is Morning Combat. Yeah, levity, levity. Get some of this. It is Morning Combat. Oh, heck yeah. It is Friday, December 11th, 2020. The best year of your life. Well, kind of. Not at all, actually. My name is Brian Campbell, that beige bastard, one half, of course, of this fine MK duo. It's Friday. We got the graphic orange background there. You got BC as your host, CBS Sports and beyond. And that guy on the left side of the screen, I can't say enough great things about him. He's a native of India. He's big and hairy. He is one half of my life at the moment, my editorial partner in all things marriage and beyond. CBS Sports own Luke Thomas. He brings producer credits, a large audience. Luke, great to have you back where you belong on this show. Although much love, of course, to Sugar Rashad Evans. Sugar Rashad Evans did a wonderful job on Wednesday. I heard the show. Great analysis of Anthony Rumble Johnson, as you could well imagine. But I am happy to be back in the chair that I belong in. Happy to be uh, today your sidekick as you host the program. I'm ready to get things going. Big, big fights this weekend. Yeah, pretty damn loaded weekend here for December. We're going to close the year with a bang. And speaking of of that bang, uh, this is what MK gives it to you guys if you don't know. If you're new to this part, live shows three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And really the best bonus content going. So please like this video. Subscribe to our Morning Combat YouTube channel. Uh, Luke, do I have to run down the murderer's row of, uh, of great interview guests we've had this week in addition to your live chat and the other bonuses we give them? Uh, is, it, look, here's what I can say. You can run down the names if you want, but it's pretty simple. Anybody who is anybody in combat sports, maybe with the exception of Joshua or something, we had him on the channel this week, largely due to Brian. Uh, go check it out. Lots and lots and lots of solid-ass interviews. Tony yeah, Ferguson please. in particular. You want Kayla Harrison, you want Tony Ferguson, Dustin Poirier the week before, big names in boxing, get all that. And also, I want to see you outfitted in exactly what Luke Thomas is wearing right now. A no, morning. No, not quite. This is my not Jedi quite. mind tricks. This Sorry, is my don't Jedi wear, mind tricks hoodie. Don't wear that shit, okay? Especially if you live outside of the U.S., you won't be wearing anything. Although, Luke, I hope you saw in fan submissions on Wednesday where that fella from overseas took a morning combat bumper sticker and put it on his chest. But look, if you live in the in the fine U.S. and you want to wear this great these great clothes for Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa season, head on over to store.show.com. Get your fix, MK style. You won't be disappointed. Also, please, uh, you want 30 days free of Showtime? Why the heck wouldn't you? We got boxing the next two weekends, next two Saturday nights on Showtime. We got the Comedy Store documentary series, Camacho the Doc. We got a lot of great stuff going on from our partners and friends here. So head on over to Showtime.com. Get your 30 days for free. Uh, try it. You might just love it, okay? I don't. You don't need to pound sand, all right? Pound, whatever. All right, that's all the crap, Luke, I think. That I've got ahead of time. How was your uh, vasectomy on Wednesday? All good? Three. Ne- I do not have a vasectomy. Everything is fine. People are like, did you have a job interview? I'm like, trust me, I am quite happy at CBS Sports. I'm doing quite well. No, no, it was. Uh, I had to get some work done for my pet. Actually, you so, don't need to tell uh, me anything. I was the one who floated the job interview rumor. Okay, yes. Luke, I well, was having. It's a little fun ridiculous, people, but okay? that's you. But no, uh, and my pet is fine, by the way. So all's well that ends well. Back in the saddle again, ready to rock. Yeah, I love Moco, by the way. It was my uh, dog, but yes, but she's fine uh, too. Yeah, what's his name, Francois? What's the guy's name? (laughs) Moco? Oh, you mean the two dogs? The dogs are Lola and Barbas. 
Yes, yes, great, great. Some of my favorite favorite Thomas members, along with Abuela. All right, let's get out of this. Let's get into what matters. Who, by this the way, weekend. oh, last thing on this, Abuela and and my brother in law are back from Colombia. My uh, my mother in law has been there a long time. My brother in law has been there. He lives here, but he has been there over a year and a half. Uh, he's True or back false? He's known today. around your house as Uncle Peepee. True or false? Say again. He is known around your house as Uncle Peepee. It's more Pepe, but yes, that's. Fairly close, Gringo. Okay, yes. all right. Oh, and by the way, speaking of bonus content and shouting out our, our brothers in this fight, okay, how about you check out Below the Belt for that great uh, Left Coast, West Coast brother series called Java Jerks. You you and Brendan Schaub this week mixing it up. What can the fans enjoy in that little piece of business, Luke? Uh, well, even though you are, uh, you know, a homeless caddish, that was actually a very fun conversation. We set up UFC 256. We sort of talk about the Paul brothers. I didn't realize. I, it was hilarious. I slandered the Paul brothers to his face only for him to tell me after the fact that he's good, fr- good friends with Logan. So that was kind of fun. Uh, but, you know, kinda, just sort of standard. Yeah, just sort of standard uh, fight talk stuff between, you know, um, uh, a good buddy and, and me. That's it. You guys are magic together on the microphone. A lot of people wondering, Luke, will there ever be a collaboration between the Big Brown and the Big Beige? Uh, there already was, folks, okay? Go check it out in the archives of Below the Belt when your boy BC, uh, you know, touched tips with Brendan, okay? It already happened, guys. Live it, love it. Thank you very much. All right, let's put that to bed. Let's set the stage for this great weekend of fights to come. And the biggest one, Saturday night. Uh, well, we got Showtime Boxing on Saturday night. Don't forget that. Also, they're going to do this little MMA piece of business in Las Vegas. It's called UFC 256. The flyweights are going to rule again atop the marquee three weeks after Devison Figueredo defended his 125 title with another stoppage win. He's going to go for 4-0 and this calendar year when he takes on the very red-hot Brandon Moreno. Luke, um... We talked about this recently. I don't know if there's ever been a guy to headline a pay-per-view twice in the same month. And if Devison Figueredo wins, that's 4-0. Could be four stoppages. He could be your breakout fighter of the year. He might might as well be your damn fighter of the year. What are your expectations for this uh, very good-looking main event here on Saturday night? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things I had a conversation with Brendan about. He was like, what did you think it would do for his popularity to make this kind of a turnaround? Now, we're assuming a world where he wins, and I want to be clear. I think you would probably agree, BC. Brandon Moreno's a live dog, very live dog. I do not want to overlook him, and I'm sure we'll get to it. But for the moment, let's imagine a world where Figueredo wins, and he wins impressively. What would that mean for him, and what, what, you know, what can we say about that? I, I don't think that it would uh, affect the popularity of the flyweight division, and it would give a very mild boost, I think, to Figueredo, uh, because you know it's, a, it's not a celebrated division. This is... Um, not the best part of the UFC's overall roster in terms of popularity. Moreno is not a popular figure, so beating him doesn't really transfer a whole lot to you. So in terms of the Q rating, the sort of rating that is a sort of a loose way of measuring popularity, I don't think it means a whole lot. But my expectations are nothing to do with that. My expectations are Moreno is a the number one contender at flyweight in the UFC's division. Figueredo might be your new boss at this weight class. We'll see if he wins on Saturday. But I'm expecting absolute fireworks, dude. I'm expecting high-level flyweights. I'm expecting Figueredo to dictate large parts of it. I'm expecting Moreno to absolutely answer the challenge over and over and over again through scrambles, through exchanges, through will, through everything. I don't know if that'll be enough to get the job done, but I I think you would be in agreement, BC, and tell me if I'm wrong, 
Whatever you want to say about the popularity, whatever you want to say about how the UFC ends its year, whatever you want to say about COVID and blah, 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 this is going to be a sensational main event for the UFC to end their pay-per-view calendar year on. Uh, absolutely. And look, they're in this spot, meaning Figueredo getting this type of shine in the division in general, obviously because three title fights that were earmarked for this at different times involving the likes of Nunes, uh, Peyotre Yan, I think there was uh, another one with Usman for a short time. They all fell apart or were pushed off to 2021 for either COVID or maybe strategic reasons. You know, more on that. Who knows? But look, the you could not be, you, if you're the, the flyweight division in general, and if you're Figueredo, you could not ask for a better chance, though, to reintroduce the division to the public who maybe only have known it from Mighty Mouse or the short season where the Triple C uh, saved it and was sort of the face. And I do like that all the guys, and I've interviewed them all ahead of these fights including Moreno this week on Morning Combat, they give Cejudo that credit. He may have saved this. Well, they have a great opportunity, not just for Figueredo, to become a star. I don't know if it can happen. And star is a... There's levels to stardom. He doesn't speak English, but he's got incredible swag. His fights are fun. If he goes 4-0 with four stoppages, good God, he's your fighter of the year. I mean, this is a great opportunity for him, but for the division as a whole. Obviously, it got a bad rap through the years because of Mighty Mouse's dominance, which is also, let's be honest, I know he didn't move product, but Dana never endorsed this guy. It was a very short season, Luke, that Dana would come out and be like, Mighty Mouse is an all-time great. I mean, he gave more love trying to sell Henan Barrow to us back in the day, you know, than he ever did to Mighty Mouse. And certainly, I think the temperature of the audience sometimes depends. It starts at the top. Um, you don't see Dana going out of his way to overblow these guys, but they are certainly right now giving them an opportunistic platform. I have no doubt they'll deliver, but here's the deal. And I want to ask you this question. I asked it to Rashad on Wednesday, and I think it's very interesting. Figueredo, of course, missed weight in the first of his four fights this calendar year. Had to beat Benavidez a second time to win the title. Luke, he seemed to just freaking barely make weight the last time three weeks ago. Um, the short turnaround of three weeks, Rashad believes physically that will help him in terms of staying on weight. Do you see this playing any factor on Saturday? Yeah, I mean, Rashad would probably know better, but I, I do think it's worth entertaining the idea that it could go either way. Perhaps not in equal levels of probability, but I mean, just sort of think about it this way. When you look at a fighter on the weigh-ins, on weigh-in day, boxing or MMA typically, they look a little bit drained, and then come fight day, especially in MMA where they cut more weight, they look a little bit filled out. You know, you look at, look, I mean, we got the slides up here. Look at Figueredo on fight day, BC. Ooh. That dude doesn't have an ounce of fat on him. There is almost no room to give. And so my thought is basically, well, if you can maintain some kind of working weight such that when you need to cut it again three weeks later, you're able to do it without issue, great. And according to, I think it was Damon Martin tweeted this yesterday from MMA Fighting, or maybe it was two days ago, that, you know, roughly midweek or so, Figueredo was only 132 and Moreno was 130, which is, which is for folks who better know about weight cutting, you know, seven pounds out, that's pretty, it should be pretty doable. That's, that's a, that's a, that's, that's, that's the kind of distance you want getting close to weigh-in time. Okay, great. So I tend to think that, you know, maintaining that little bit of, uh, that, that weight for three weeks, right, where you can't eat a whole lot, you have to train a whole lot to keep the weight down. It's probably better than trying to do it over the course of 12 weeks, but with 12 weeks, you have time to make a few errors and get right again. You have time to do, put the road work in and get it down again. With three, you have all I'm saying is you have much less room for margin of error. So if he knows what he's doing, there's less suffering. If he makes any mistake, there's not any room to fix it. We're going to see, I guess, today in a matter of hours. Actually, you know what? Wayne should have started right now. We're going to see which one of those two it is.
Yeah, stay with us, please, though. Keep keep watching the show live. We'll yeah, tell we'll you give you the happens. results. If anybody misses, we'll tell you. <laughs> uh, look, I love what the future could bring if Figueredo wins, obviously, because you got guys like Askar Askarov who can make fun as balls fights. Cody Garbrandt could be back. Who knows if Sohudo would pick up the phone again if uh, this can go on a run for Devison Figueroa. But obviously, he's got to win this fight first. So let's close by talking about the damn fight, Luke. Uh, Figueredo, I think, rightfully is your favorite. Moreno's a live dog because he's so freaking hungry and he goes after it. And I love his story that he told Luke of, you know, getting cut two years ago, going to LFA and winning that championship and coming back and just really going for it, trying to find out how great he could be. He's figured it out. He's 3-0-1 in his last four. That one draw was that war with Askarov that could have gone either way. But when I am asked for CBS Sports, and I'm sure you are asked a lot to sort of, who's going to win this? You know, what's the difference between the two? There's a cliche I sometimes reach for, Luke, and I'm going to use it this time around. I love Moreno, but everything he does well, I kind of feel like Figueredo does a little bit better or a lot a bit better, depending on the category, which can certainly close potential avenues for victory. Uh, I love Figueredo in this one. I don't know if he can get as quick a finish as he's done three times already this year, but talk me into a Moreno upset here. Please, Luke. Please. Well, I... Frankly, I sort of agree. Well, no, not sort of. I definitely agree with you. I mean, they don't. It's not true to say that they're the exact same fighter because that's not accurate. But you're right. It's like, okay, what are some of the strengths? I mean, you could say maybe Moreno has higher output. I think that might be kind of true. I mean, the interesting part about Figueroa is if you look at older tape on him, the reason why he's only now getting the recognition that he deserves is he's always been good, but he's been somewhat of a very much a development project sort of coming around. I mean, the interesting part about, like, for example, the guillotine on Perez is how, not just the angle which he hit it, but sort of how quickly, once it went to the ground, he was able to do that, or when he needed to take the back of Benavidez and bow him out and choke him out, how violent and quick and, like, you know, sudden it all was. It's like getting pounced upon by a tiger. You're like, Jesus, this ended not only badly, but rapidly. The fact is he didn't used to be that way. In fact, he would take people down, and he was not an aggressive guard passer. He was not necessarily all that. I mean, we would get to it but he was not all that aggressive about getting to the back, but he has slowly found ways to just understand where am I going with this? What do I want to do? And let's find some tricky ways um, to get there or some efficient ways at a bare minimum. And so in that sense, he's still kind of patient-ish, but not like he used to be. So you could say that Moreno has slightly more volume. I think that's probably fair to say. But in terms of power punching, uh, he can't match. In terms of the ground jiu-jitsu, I think he's a fantastic scrambler, but Figueredo is absolutely vicious down there. And as I mentioned, really cleaned up his game, not looking for takedowns so much and to lay on top of you, looking for the back, right? You know, looking for uh, uh, you know, unique entries into quick positions, latching onto submissions very, very fast rather than, you know, slowly take you down, pass guard, move to side, move to mount, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't have that same game anymore. It's a different kind of game. So, if Moreno is going to win, I think he's got to make Figueredo work, but he's got to make him work by backing him up, but then clinch breaking, right? Because Figueredo, if you notice where he stands, he stands way outside, and a lot of times he'll use kicking game and then leaping into range to get control. You got to keep the fight just inside of that, inside of your boxing range. You got to stick the jab in his face, and when he tries to clinch up with you or whatever, you have to break it immediately. So you have to find this kind of homeostasis, sort of, uh, in the fight where you're not too far away in kicking range. You're close enough to have your jab there, but you're also far enough away where when he shoots or tries to clinch, you can stop it immediately. A little bit Holly Holmish in that way. Ooh, Is that doable? That's a hard way to fight, you know. 
Yeah, uh, by the way, shout out to this show talking about uh, cage fighting and dropping homeostasis into the middle of it, as only Luke Thomas could do. That's a hell of an education he got in college. Uh, Quickly to close, uh, if Moreno was a little bit more of a knockout threat, Luke, I might like his chances more. And by the way, when I interviewed him this week, I sort of incorrectly was like, Brandon, I love this fight. Two guys that finish, that go for it. And he's like, hold on, hold on. I'm not a finisher. I have many decisions. And I was like, okay, you know, that's that's your words, but you might be right. Luke, under any other circumstance, Moreno Figueredo would probably be your uh, clubhouse leader in terms of what will be your fight of the night on a UFC pay-per-view card. But this co-main event, um, it bangs. You know, somebody get Ricky Martin up in the bullpen. It bangs, Luke. Uh, it is a lightweight bout. Three rounds. Tony Ferguson, Charles Dobronx, Oliveira. Uh, maybe, Luke, maybe, maybe this is a de facto number one contender about. Maybe the winner will fight the winner of Poirier McGregor January 23rd for the title. But talking to Tony Ferguson this week, as I did on MK, uh, he don't care about that, Luke. That's the big headline. He basically told the UFC that they can pound sand to promise him dangle the carrot. He's got that old interim title on his mantle. That's the only title that matters to him. I know you watched that interview, and I don't tee you up with this to to pat me on the back or pat our download stats, but every Tony Ferguson interview is wild. Can you please be the Dr. Joyce brothers here and try to um, get in the man's head? Does he sound safe, happy, encouraged, motivated, Uh CTE'd? Where'd you get out of that? Because it was a wild ride, Luke. Yeah, that was one of the more unique interviews because I came away being like, I can't tell if he's over all of that, that like that eight-year campaign to get the respect, to get to the title, which was supposed to be the Habib fight, ended up being Gaethje, blah, blah, blah. That was a huge and maybe the most important chapter in his career. And he's clearly on the other side of it, right? You could just tell from the way he talks that part of his... His professional life is over. Now, that doesn't mean that the ambitions are over. That's not what I'm suggesting. But that chapter and everything that it represented and everything it built to, he's on the other side of it. The question is, being on the other side of it, are you now calm and in control and understanding there are different goals you have and you're ready to go and absolutely murder people for them? Or are you over them in a way where you don't quite have that same burning motivation, that that momentum that everything was building to after a bad beating at the hands of Gaethje? I honestly could read either interpretation into it. The only thing I could take away was he definitely turned the chapter, or turned the page, I should say, and entered a new chapter after the Gaethje fight. The very nature of it, BC, and you're the one who interviewed him, did you come away with new chapter as in rejuvenated, new goals, new identity, still same Tony, or new chapter, (laughs) new identity, maybe not the same Tony? Uh, I, <laughs> I don't know, Luke. I don't really know what to take from that interview. The fact that twice he had to uh, interrupt me to be like, what was the question again? Uh, look, I, I get that he, he was did. was playing video games. Yeah, and I get that he did Tony things, which is I don't care about the narrative that you have coming into this interview. I'm not going to be labeled under, you know, I'm not in UFC is not in control of my future, meaning they're going to make me chase certain things. I'm just coming out here to fight for my family. I respect that. I certainly respect Luke, his absurd mental and physical recuperative abilities, whether it was, you know, coming back from that knee injury uh, that he suffered in that TV studio and fighting like four months later, or even what he's going to try to prove this Saturday. 
that that beating, which was savage, that he took against Justin Gaethje, that it is not going to have a physical or mental effect on him. We don't know that, Luke, okay? He went four and a half rounds of freaking hell, got beaten. But, um, you know, he seems to think it's fine, it doesn't matter. He gave a very weird story about being in the hospital and uh, just deciding mentally that, you know, I'm going to start the recovery process right now because I don't want my wife to see me like this. And, you know, he claims that things just started healing. I Look, I don't know. I, this guy, is he a shaman? Is he a weirdo? He's a, he's incredible. I'll tell you, that's what he is. Okay. Will this mean anything? If there's one guy you cannot count out from the standpoint of trying to guess what he's going to look like, it's certainly Tony Ferguson. He's a slight favorite here, comfortable, but slight. And, um, I think that's the right call. The key is, you know, does he really care about chasing the title? Cause there is a potential opportunity here at 36 was, that eight, that run that you talked about, the 12-fight win streak, putting it all on the line to freaking finally get to Habib. Does he lose part of his fighting spirit by never getting that? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I want to talk to you more about what the hell these three rounds are going to actually look like because we're right, you know, we're talking all things El Kakui right now. But Charles Oliveira is on a freaking seven-fight win streak, and he's already got the UFC submission record by like three over Damian Maya. This man is 31 reborn there were two times luke in the past decade i counted them out are we not talking enough about Oliveira's chances here because you texted me and i gave you the response that 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 you felt in your heart that i don't know is ferguson could run through this guy or this could be you know the beginning of the end for tony's run i mean this punch from you see here from jared gordon jared gordon was trying to close the distance on him he lay, he was trying to double jab right so one two and then throw the right he got hit with the first jab, and then in the second one, uh, Oliveira slipped off the side, head off the center line, and then crashed into him with his own punch and dropped Gordon there and then followed up with one more shot and ended the fight within you know a minute and a half of the first round, something like that. Don't get me dead wrong for it. So, pretty close to the beginning of the round. It did not go very far. You know, We talked about this with Marvin Vittori, BC. The guy entered the UFC at 23. At 27, he's a much different talent. Dude, Charles Oliveira has been here how long? I mean, you can't even r recall how long. He's 31 years old. 31. I mean, it is shocking that, you know, yes, you have an impression of a guy by, based on what they show you. It's hard to get one based on any other thing unless you just want to imagine it. But part of, I think, being fair to these guys is if they come into the UFC very, very young, early 20s, let's say pre-25, if they stick around long enough, chances are they might be a lot different by age 27 or 30, in this case, 31. And so I had an impression for years, and I'll give the fight fans credit, they were way ahead of me on this one with Charles Oliveira. I always knew he was a pretty good threat, but I, caught, I thought he was kind of flaky. You know, like his neck being all jacked up, for example, in the Max Holloway fight or Paul Felder going right into his guard when he wasn't supposed to and then hammering him out. I kind of thought, you know, the lesser competition, he'll pick them off, but he won't beat anybody who's really, really good. Now, Ferguson is by far his toughest challenge, but the reality is you cannot watch tape on Charles Oliveira from even 2015 and think that that bears a ton of relevance to the guy he is today. He is, in many ways, a little bit like Figueredo. Different setups, different ways of applying their game, but they're patient when they need to be, and they are all gas and go when they need to be as well. And because they can be so deadly, and because they can wait for their right moment, and they have a good eye at finding it, dude, they're a hard guy to beat. Oliveira goes to the body a lot. He does a lot of leg kicks. 
He's not a headhunter. I think that might service him a little bit in terms of landing, getting out of position, or landing and then following, as we saw with Justin Gaethje when he fought Tony Ferguson. Obviously, if he goes to the ground, I don't know what's going to happen, but at a bare minimum, BC, you'll like him to hold his own against Tony Ferguson, right? And so I was looking at this stat. I could be wrong about this, too. I'll, I'll double-check. Again, I don't think this guy has been to a decision, win or lose, I think in six years, BC. Six years. This guy is a finisher. His average fight time is around seven wow. minutes. Look, I mean, it was 2014. 2014 yeah. Jeremy Stevens. Who would have thought crazy. against Jeremy? Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. So anyway, I'll just wrap up on that. So to your point, this is a guy that I have always thought was good, but not great. And then in his last fight, BC, we saw him take a massive turn in the Gordon fight, disposed of him like he was nothing. And that's a good fighter, too. Again, I think we'd agree. Ferguson, a very different challenge. But if anyone is ready for a step up at this time, given their development all these years, it's Doe Bronx. I think he is as live a dog as they come in combat sports. Yeah, uptown, baby. Uptown on Doe Bronx there. Uh, let me correct a dead wrong there. Not a comfortable uh, favorite. Tony Ferguson, according to William Hill, minus 161, plus 130 to Oliveira. Let me play quick devil's advocate with you, though, Luke, because there are people who go, okay, you guys talk up like, like I made a comment in the Tony Ferguson interview, and I believe it. I made two comments. One, that I think Ferguson's one of the best pound-for-pound -pound fighters of this era, in some ways an uncrowned champion, although he had the interim belt for that short season, and one of the best lightweights of all time. Now, there are sort of devil's advocate to that, Luke, who people say, dude, 12-fight win streak, yes, but how many of those against top five guys, blah, blah, blah. I don't want you to do that argument, okay? Because I respect that 12-fight run, and there are some very good names on there. But I want you to do the same argument talking about Oliveira, though. Yes, seven fights in a row. Yes, he doesn't go to the scorecards. Yes, he'll submit anybody at any time. But, Luke, outside of that win against future UFC champion Kevin Lee in March of this year, there are a lot of... Jim Miller's, Wash Clay Guida's, Christos sure. Giagos, David sure. Tamer's on that record. Um, there are levels to this game. Is the 7-0 and version of Charles Oliveira ready for this level, which is Tony frickin' Ferguson? Right, but this is, the, this is what essentially the fight boils down to. You're asking, is there anything on the record that definitively tells you Charles Oliveira can beat Tony Ferguson. And in terms of what's on the ledger, the answer is quite obviously no. There's nothing on there. The question is, is what he has shown more recently and through the long stages of his development, is that enough for you to believe that he can rise to the occasion and then make this the signature win? I mean, what did Vittori have on his resume before he fought Hermanson that told you Fair. that like he was capable of beating a top five guy? Did he have any wins over other top five guys? No, he did not. And then he goes in there and does what he does because at that point, he was ready to make the leap. If you're banking on Oliveira, you're not banking on what he's done per se. You're banking on that what he has shown is enough to make you believe that when he has to take a step up, then he'll have that scalp, you know, hanging in the whatever they hung scalps, you know, which is a very, uh, you know, obviously awful metaphor. But you know what I'm trying to say. Once the trophy is on the case, he doesn't have the trophy yet. You're banking on the idea that now there is enough reason to believe he can get there. And, yeah, and, and also that Ferguson at 37, coming off of a bad beating, not really chasing titles, is he in the right space as well? Sort of a, is there a coming and going moment there? It's for the people out there to decide, but that's what you'd be looking at. Yeah, why don't you just throw trash on the ground and make the Indian cry here, Luke? I mean, seriously. Um, I <laughs> you like got, you got any more references that anyone in their 20s would never understand? 
Yeah, it's a fair point. It's a fair point. Uh, so, look, I like Ferguson at the end of the day. I don't know what it's going to look like be- besides a, a wild track meet of, of of constant scrambles and and changes of momentum. Three rounds is going to be interesting here. Uh, there's a short window that they got to do. They got to do some action because there's a lot potentially, like I said, on the line. I think there's certainly more on the line for Ferguson to get a monster fight. And Luke, I do believe that there is some payback for him. He has been a guy who suffered some bad luck. He was a company guy with the UFC for taking that Gaethje fight through the quarantine last minute. Tough challenge, not the full title on the line. There are multiple times, I believe, Luke, that Ferguson in the last two years could have sat out rather than came back because he had already achieved securing the Habib fight, right? He'd already gotten to the like mountaintop. It just didn't come together. I wonder um, if that reward will be there for him if he wins, meaning, you know, he's not going to get Chandler next in a non-title fight. If he wins this fight, everything moving forward, his next opportunity will have to be massive. Luke, it will freaking have to be. Yes, although what specifically is a little bit hard to tell. One last point I'd like to make on this. I wonder if this might just come down to chins because Tony, even if he is damaged from the last fight, one thing that a little bit gets lost, everyone's like, oh, he's wild, he does this, he does that. Okay, all that stuff's true, but like, here's just the reality about Tony. Um, he hits hard. He hits very hard for 155. He always has been a hard hitter. And Oliveira will sometimes play some games a little bit and get hit in ways that, you know, he got dropped by Tamer, for example, right? Um it might come down to that, in which case, advantage Ferguson. To me, it's going to be who fights almost a little... I, want to, I don't want to say more disciplined, but um, I just wonder. If they're trading a little bit, that's probably going to be an advantage for Tony. Can Tony just sort of use suppressive fire on the guy to keep him at bay? We're going to have to see. Uh, Luke, I did sort of go bout by bout with Rashad on Wednesday, so I don't want to rehash that, and we got to move on topics here. But there are a lot of interesting storylines on this undercard, whether it be the pay-per-view main card or the preliminaries. Uh, which one do you care about the most? Uh, a lot of good ones. The Gavin Tucker, Billy Quarantillo is good. Mackenzie Dern, Virna Jandaroba is good. But I'm going to go with the fight that's actually below this one. Maybe that's a cliched way to go about it, but it is the one I care about the most. Uh, Rafael Fazayev taking on Hanato Moicano. Moicano was Ooh. a big stud at 145, but he kind of ran into some buzzsaws at the top of the division, moved to 155. And Fazayev, we saw him at Fight Island. This was the guy that had sort of the lean back to get out of the way of the kick uh, at a Tiger Muay Thai. Excellent uh, decorated um, Thai boxer, and now he has made the transition to MMA and just has, you know, all these tools and tricks, not merely defensive ones, but, you know, feints and angles and blah, blah, blah. That should be a hell of a contest. And to that point, Moicano, slight underdog, plus 125 to Fazayev, around minus 140. Uh, I really am curious to see what Fazayev can do. Azerbaijani yeah. guy, really, really tough. Fazayev did do the rock away that time. He also called out Conor McGregor today on Twitter. I'm not sure what's behind that. But, uh, Luke, I have talked myself into believing that, you know, plus 400 underdog or whatever he is, that JDS will be the truth one more time. And, you know, there is that argument to make that Junior Dos Santos maybe could get caught if he loses four in a row and if it's four by knockout. But let's remember, those other three in a row by knockout were against absolute killers in Rosenstruck, Blades, and Nganu. I respect Surreal Gone, Gane, Goner, certainly. But I have seen JDS reinvent himself, Luke, when he needs to. And when he reinvents himself, it's 
fighting a little bit safer and relying on his boxing, l- focusing more on movement and the jab and defense and getting in and out than looking to go out there and slug. I mean, we all know his chin cannot hold up anymore against the super elite sluggers. I mean, am I crazy to think that there's an avenue here if he just bites down, works to just save his job and keep alive, that his skills and experience can be enough against the raw but good-looking Frenchman here? Yes, it's the same kind of game. Not the same. It's a similar kind of game, I think, to what Moreno needs to play a little bit, which is stick and move, angles, jab, you know, on your horse the whole time. Uh, But the difference is he only has to do it for three rounds versus five, which is to his favor. But the other difference is that if Moreno takes a shot, you know, he has a hell of a chin. JDS yeah, just yeah. has no or very little ability at this point to accept damage, and particularly from a guy as big as strong as that fucking Frenchman he's fighting. So <laughs> it's possible. I, I don't think it's a crazy I, thought at all, but it's he's got his work cut out for him. I like the way he boxed that time against Ben Rothwell and really made that a boring fight to. Yeah, but to how keep long ago was that? Was that four years ago at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's a that long was. time. Uh, but I love JDS. Don't don't get me going on that. All right, great. Gr- look for a card that doesn't have you know a main event that's going to sell th- a million pay per view buys. A lot of fun storylines. Looking forward. I'm going to be checking in early. Hopefully by the time fight night happens, we don't lose the whole prelim card to COVID, Luke, because I do want to uh, see Chase Hooper and company. Uh, quickly, I'm going to order off the menu here, but um, you're a good guy to talk about this because you follow it closely. There was a UFC lawsuit update in the past sort of 24, 36 hours on Twitter. Are we going to see that thing in court? now with Kung Lee and John Fitch and company what do you know about that it really depends on what uh, the UFC tries to do here so for folks who may not know the judge in the case offered them bout certification not identity certification so what that means is it is a class action lawsuit it will go forward and of the two between bout and identity bout was the one that offered significantly more compensation and damages well into over a billion dollars potentially multiples of that depending on how things shake out now, you might be asking what the difference was. Bout certification was merely, did you fight in the UFC at a certain time, which they had identified as the range of dates? And the identification one was, were the fighters uh, mistreated and uh, uh, not properly compensated for use of their identity and likeness rights? The judge tossed that, but he kept the bout certification. So very much alive and alive in a very prominent way. The question now becomes, is the UFC going to appeal that ruling? They, they are. It will go to the Ninth Circuit. Now, the reason this is interesting is, BC, uh, ordinarily, uh, if it was class certification and someone was challenging it, in most courts there would be a mandatory requirement for the circuit court to review it. The ninth, for whatever reason, does not necessarily have to. So the ninth could say, we're not even going to review it. At that point, now you have a choice to make if you're UFC. Um, And what the law experts who spoke to the New York Times said was, if that thing continues, right, so the the class certification holds, the UFC is going to be heavily incentivized to settle. They do not want that to go to trial because a lot of bad things could happen to them and, frankly, to the industry if it goes to trial. One thing that the article made really interesting, which I didn't quite realize, was there's a fair amount of case law on monopoly. There's not a whole lot on monopsony. In fact, very little. And there's a concern that if this case goes to trial and, let's say, the plaintiffs win, it could redefine all kinds of industries by virtue of the case law that this would set a precedent on. For example... The plaintiffs are arguing that they deserve wage share, right? We, should, we, don't, we don't get uh, 50% of the total revenue. We get 20%. We believe we deserve a higher share. Would that extend beyond sports and just to industries generally? Telecom, uh, service industries, banking, whatever. How would that change 
employee-employer relationships. Now, some lawyers disagree would have that kind of an effect, but here's the point, BC. Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody knows exactly what would happen. And UFC also could get to a point where if they lose at trial, you are you on the hook, let's say, for $1.6, billion. A lot of times when these kind of cases go to, to trial and the, and the uh, defendants lose, there could be multiples of that handed out. So the UFC, I mean, there's a real possibility where, A, if the UFC loses, they could change the way in which case law defines monopsony power for all kinds of industries. Two, they could be on the hook for $5 billion. So the, the idea is if you settle, you have to settle for a lot less than you're being sued for. How much? No one knows. So let's see what happens with the Ninth Circuit. Let's see what happens with that process. But if that doesn't go forward and what the judge said yesterday stands, there is a very strong likelihood that they will try to settle. And that will be interesting in and of itself. Wow. Wow. I'm looking forward to see where that goes. And by the way, your predatory control of all things, producer credits, show IP for MK is very monopsilopsical, Luke. So I'm very much against that as well. A uh, final point on UFC, again, ordering off the menu. Uh, Dana White did, did an interview with Aaron Bronstetter of TSN yesterday. We love that Canadian. Dan, Dan Rayfield loved that interview, huh? Yeah, Dan Rayfield said A A B to hell, and I'm not talking about Broner on Twitter. But uh, look, it looks like Zufa Boxing, Dana White's finally throwing in the uh, white towel here, Luke, and saying, you know, boxing is so corrupt it won't let me in. I just want to give you a quick 30-second take on that. Um, about time Dana realized this, I was never cheering against Dana to enter this space. In fact, Luke, when those Twitter rumors came out a couple times that he might try to join forces with Al Heyman and buy the PBC and bring UFC Fight Pass in and try to develop like their own league, dude, I was all for it. Shake up this, this way of doing business in boxing, right? Do something different. But for Dana to come out and just blame boxing after making so many teases and promises of big things, it's like, dude... Uh, you were very naive. You were very naive to think you can just walk in to this, uh, you know, wild west here of of sheriffs and stuff. And I'm not defending the way boxing is done business wise. Certainly not, because nobody. Nobody chastises the things that are wrong with my favorite sport than me, by the way. But it's just like, come on, Dana, you had to know better than this. Luke, he has a certain level of control. And maybe this ties into the lawsuit argument. I mean that you just can't get in sports forget you know forget combat sports any and that's because uh zufa rescued this sport of mma at a time when it couldn't get on tv and was dead they bought the freaking ufc for what two million dollars and built it into a league in which they are promoter matchmaker you know everything across the board and they've done great on it but you don't have that kind of control in the damn nba you know what i mean like there's no they're like to think that you can walk into the most unstructured sport in all of sports and think you're just going to throw your ball bag around and walk in. It's like, dude, everyone that has tried this who wasn't a gangster and wasn't willing to long-term lose a lot of money to make some has bowed out from Jay-Z to everyone. Everyone's tried to do this and they failed. Like to just think that because you're Dana White, you're going to do any differently. It's like, come on, dude. You know? Yeah. The entrepreneurial arrogance here is sort of interesting. I mean, just state it plainly. Like why can't Dana White, for folks who may not understand, why couldn't Dana White, and maybe not right away, but let's say even over time, do in boxing what he did in MMA? Why couldn't he do that? And the answer is it's not legal. There are literally laws preventing 
the kind of situation that exists in MMA. Yeah. Now, that, I'm not telling you that MMA is some kind of illegal, shady underworld. No, no. It's just that there are certain laws in boxing that do not apply to MMA. Those laws have not been extended to MMA that create certain mechanisms where with the Ali Act, where the uh, promoter not only has to show the fighter what the financial compensation realities are, but that the promoter does not have control of the titles, the rankings are independent, um, you can be free from a contract depending on, uh, the, the contracts are shorter, they're not, as, um, they're not as restrictive, right? There's all kinds of ways, in that, and there are other incentives in boxing too that change things a little bit. I'm not saying there's no ability to shake it up at all, but that concentration of elite talent it's 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 just not possible. You 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 couldn't do it. You can't have a a, a UFC belt equivalent inside boxing. It, it, it's it's literally against the law. And so I think he took a look, a look around and was like, okay, well, what can I do within that? And there's not much you can really do. I mean, here's the reality. I'll give Dana a little bit of credit. There's two things I think that deserve to be acknowledged about what he said as well. One was, has boxing done a good enough job to attract younger audiences? I don't know how you could argue that it could. I'm not saying it's a calamity, but could they do better? Yeah, they could do a lot better. We'll see what happens as Shakur Stevenson and Teofimo Lopez and and you know Tank Davis get a little bit older. Maybe they bring some people along with them. But okay, fair point. And the other one that folks need to wrap their head around is I'm not t- like it sounds like I shill on behalf of the Ali Act. I'm not really sold on the Ali Act, right? I- I'm actually much more in favor of unionization. And the reason why is because I want the only thing I want MMA fighters to have from boxing are their purses. I don't want the rest of boxing, right? In other words, there is a real alignment between the UFC's interest and the UFC's consumer's interest. And they're able to make those things work because of some of the lack of restrictions over them. What I want are still some protections for the fighter, a union, health insurance, retirement, bit better pay. But what I don't want is the broken system necessarily and the sort of splintered, loose confederation of nonsense that you have in boxing. Um, but Dana thinking that you could go into that situation and, you know, just round everybody up and make it work, it, you can't. Like, it does not work that way. So I actually prefer what the UFC is able to do in certain ways. I would just like to see them get paid a little bit more. Yeah, and it doesn't work that way, especially right now when so many promoters are getting, you know, 70% of their finances from these network TV deals, which makes each channel almost its own promoter. There's no room for Dana to walk in, and again, unless he's going to purchase, right? You know, a large group of fighters at one time. You just can't do it. It's like walking into the saloon in the Wild West and saying, "I'm the new sheriff in town." Only the music didn't stop. Nobody cared. They're like, "Yeah, yeah, right, buddy. That's fine." But I would like to wear a Zufa boxing shirt. Maybe I can get it for four ninety nine on a UFC store one of these days. Looking forward to that, Luke, uh, as well. All right, topic three. Uh, let's recap what happened last night, Thursday night, on the CBS Sports Network. It was. Bellator 254, Luke, and we had a changing of the guard at women's flyweight. And I'll be honest, coming in, this matchup didn't, you know, light my fire. But the more we researched it and looked into it and sort of figured out who Juliana Velasquez is, the more I got excited about it in the final 24 hours. I'm not here to tell you this fight was overly exciting. I am here to tell you I'm impressed that Juliana Velasquez is what, 11-0, 12-0 now, and she is the new sheriff in town at 125 in Bellator with a pretty thorough five-round unanimous decision over the only champion Bellator has known, Alima Leigh McFarlane. Luke, she was poised, patient, strong, bigger, 
Uh, she really did everything perfectly from a slow start to really never opening up an avenue of victory for Alima Lay. And I got to give her a lot of credit, even though these aren't the right highlights. Guys, don't we own Bellator? Can we get the right damn highlights in here? Uh, this was a hell of a victory for Velasquez. Yeah, that's not Alima Lay, although that was Juliana Velasquez. It was kind of interesting, right? I mean, Alima Lay is the, uh, was the first champion at flyweight for Bellator. Just from an odds perspective, given the growth of the sport and the growth of that division and everything else, was she going to be the best ever flyweight that Bellator ever had? Probably not, you know? And she had a nice long reign, and she did a lot with it. Where She was in Hawaii, and she had these incredible walkouts, and you know, she was very media savvy. She's done some work for them in terms of um, analysis work at the desk. But Velasquez, to your point, BC, was just bigger. She was better. She had an answer for essentially everything except for maybe a couple of takedowns. That isn't to say that it wasn't close at times, and that isn't to say that I think Alimelay McFarlane with a better game plan couldn't have made it even much closer than she did. She seemed to realize later, I'm able to charge this person and then back them up a lot more easily than I thought I could, and by that point, it was too little too late. You could have given her the fourth and fifth round or just one of those rounds. Um, But either way, Velasquez, strong, no real glaring weaknesses. That isn't to say she's good at everything, but I mean to say, you know, it's not like she has the worst chin or, you know, doesn't know how to do any good throws or doesn't understand the value of an underhook or uh, doesn't have good footwork. She's got sort of all those T's crossed and all those I's dotted at least enough. And that was way too much for McFarland. She had no real jab in this one. You saw her staying way outside and then having to charge in constantly. And she was doing what's called a dart, and she couldn't really make a whole lot of use out of it. In fact, Velasquez was taking it away from her later. So to me, it's the maturation of the women's division. It's the maturation of the women's game. This kind of turnover is expected. McFarlane was a great champion for them. Maybe she'll be a champion again. But either way, this was a bit of a torch passing that tells you a broader story about the women's MMA game and then that division in particular. Yeah, and you can see the size difference in the video. Shout out to our producer, Manich, for getting it up there. Uh, that Velasquez was bigger and stronger. Here's the thing, though, Luke. Velasquez was surprisingly, in some ways, not after we saw the results of the fight, the betting favorite coming in, despite the fact that Ali Malay was, what, 10-0 and and was on the verge of breaking Bellator's uh, entire promotion record for consecutive title defenses with her fifth. She didn't get there, but the reason why I picked against Velasquez was I don't think Kez. she does enough, Luke. Kez. She waits. No, there's no Quez. It's Kez. She, wh- there's no Quez. What am I doing here? Yeah, it's Kez. Vas- Velasquez. Velasquez. Okay, sorry. I was, uh, yeah, I was very Chardaying uh, her there, saying, um, "Look, she doesn't do enough." Meaning, she leaves the door open for a busier opponent to uh, to rally against her. And look, the reason why you saw those scorecards closer than it looked on your eyes is because there was no action in the first two rounds. In some ways, you could flip the coin on who won both. And I thought Alima Lay rallied in that fourth round to get that takedown and kind of steal that round late. But to Velasquez's credit, by limiting her output, she made Alima Lay come to her to try to at least make some action happen. And I think that's where Velasquez did her best work as that upright poise counterpuncher and landed the bigger shots. And that cut seemed to be a big key to sort of change the momentum there. So it's a strong win. She's 34. She trains with the the Nog brothers and and, and Anderson Silva. Uh, I love the story of her late brother. And she's got the tattoo of his face on the inside of her arm. She wants to be a champion outside the cage. She seems like a good person overall. This was a nice win, but... You know, I'm not going to bury the truth here. This division is still growing. I mean, really, this division worldwide, Luke, is still growing. It's Valentina Shevchenko and almost nobody else in the UFC. 
Uh, Ali Malay was not beating world beaters. I think this was the first really stiff challenge she fought. Uh, she was outgunned. She was humble afterwards. But um, I could see a rematch between these two a couple fights from now, and I think it'll be different. A little bit different, you know? Josh Thompson made a good point on the broadcast. One, Alima Lee McFarlane has been very tight and good friends with uh, Liz Carmouche for a long time. They did not train together for this one. I guess now that they're in the same organization and the same division, she would have been a good training partner. Liz Carmouche also might be a tough-ass challenge for Velasquez. The Velasquez is a lot bigger in frame, but somebody like Liz Carmouche, Gorilla, is strong as shit. There are a lot and experience too. Now, you know, her last fight against Shevchenko probably didn't inspire a ton of confidence, but you know, this is not Shevchenko. So, to me, is she a potential live dog? I guess we'll have to see. But I, I, I would, I, I'm curious to see how that goes. Absolutely. Uh, and that co-main event quickly here, Magomed Magomedov, the Russian, made his uh, Bellator debut and. Uh, Absolutely dominant and a ragdolling performance over uh, Matus Matos, uh, something like that. The Brazilian guy, the 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 you know the the, the guy, the guy. Uh, I thought it was interesting coming in that Matus, they both Matos. they both they both had <laughs> lost to they both had lost to Peter Yan for their only loss. But of course, the hook was that Magomedov uh, defeated Peotre Yan for his only defeat in ACB. But Luke, there was a little bit of bad blood coming in between them, and I saw some people saying boring on Twitter. I'm not going to echo the boring chant here. Uh, it wasn't thrilling, but I was very impressed by Magomed Magomedov and Manich, the producer. Here, if you can replay him slamming Matus on his head, Luke, yeah. that's one of the scarier freaking moments I have ever seen. Yeah, in I'm MMA. not even sure that that Good honestly, Lord. I'm being dead serious. I don't know if that was legal. I, I, I don't not, know how he's not paralyzed. Luke, how is this man not paralyzed? That was vicious, bro. Him and Kevin Randleman, like Kevin Randleman well, I mean, I should say Fedor getting slammed by Kevin Randleman. I don't know. You know, I said this on CBS Sports HQ last night, BC, and I wonder what you think of it. You know how this goes. Everyone who's got uh, every white dude, look at this throw. Wow. Oh, my Jesus. God. Oh, God, Luke. Have you seen that shit? Wow. Wow. Okay. So so here's the deal. Every white guy who's got an Amish beard and a Z and a V in his name, you know, everyone wants to compare them to Habib. And there are some obviously commonalities in the way that they look. There's some commonalities in their backgrounds. There's some commonalities even in the way that they fight. And I'm not here to tell you that Magomedov is just like Nurmagomedov. There are meaningful differences. But what I will say is along the fence line, once you're there, he did have a lot of Habib's game. Getting you to wrestle to your hands, hip riding, uh, waiting to find cross wrist, then taking half of the back, not necessarily full, only when he took, takes you backwards the other direction, away from your hands, does he then go for the back and then trying it from there. Doesn't have the same ground and pound exactly. Was still wrestling a little bit more positional control. So he's a little bit more Zabit in that way. But still, the comparisons in that sense, I don't think are far apart. But the, but the real takeaway is this, BC. They're asking, like, what is next for him? Well, I don't know if he gets a title shot off of that. But I know this. He ain't far from one. They might give Ooh. him one more fight in front of that and see what we can do. And if he wins that one, I mean, dude, uh, Mateus Matos was never in this. Not for a second. He, he put up a valiant effort in trying to see his way through it, but he never had any real offense. So my thought is, they're either going to give that guy, Magomedov, a title shot next, or he's pretty close to it. And either way, he is going to be a force at bantamweight. And last point, BC, you know a weight class is good when you can go all across the world and in every, every time they're 135 or they're 155 division, whatever, whatever division it is, there's hammers every time. You know that is a worldwide deep-ass weight class. You've got that at 135 now in Bellator.
And you know a region is good when you can grab just any random dude from the caucus and you know he can wrestle. And, and look, if you think that's boring, I don't care. I believe he can do that for five rounds. And I believe Juan Archuleta, your recently crowned, uh, you know, vacant Bantamweight champion, needs to needs to be careful here because this guy has a motor. And he's got the same exact facial hair, Luke, I had at 19 when I was hanging out in smoke-filled rooms in people's basements. So shout out to him. Luke, it's a weird name, Magomed Magomedov. It reminded me I went to high school with David Davidson. So shout out to that kid um do you know george hw bush's granddaughter lauren married a guy with the last name lauren so it's lauren lauren do you know who, that there's who was, a who was the guy from american idol uh yeah yeah i know who i know exactly uh what i'm sure manich knows it manich is a is a is a is a rising star in in the uh r&b singing white guy circuit manich what's is it Phillips Phillips, Luke? Yeah, no, it's like Phil Phillips. Something like that, yeah. right? Yeah. Also, there's a, um, I think he's South Korean, a, a former table tennis star whose name is Dong Dong, Luke. That's, that's, a, that's a hell of a... How Luke, is he a, not the official spokesman for the show? I don't know the answer to that. Wow, I know there's Sirhan Sirhan, and, you know, that's very, you know, yeah. Okay, all right, enough of that weird stuff there. Shout out to uh, Mago Medoff there. Uh, Luke, I didn't get your take on, on Rumble Johnson going to Bellator. This came, like, out of freaking nowhere. I liked his interview with Goldie. Well, I liked Rumble's part of that interview with Goldie on the broadcast Goldie. where he basically, you know, says, you know what I do, right? I, I swing for the fences. I take souls, more or less. He wants to focus on 205, but he'd fight at heavyweight. Uh, this is a, certainly a big coup for Bellator to have another tough out for Vadim Nemkov. But, um, Luke, I don't spread conspiracy theories, right? But Word. I listen to them. I listen to them. Uh, it, this ain't a drug testing thing, right? This is more of a financial move from UFC letting him go, right? Right? Right. Uh, yeah. I. I mean, who knows? You know, who knows with these guys? It's very, very hard to say. But, uh, well, if it was drug testing and he accepted a sanction, then it would become public. I think that's right. I'm not sure how that goes anymore. Um, but I love the move. I love the signing though. Yeah, I'm fired the move. Up. The move is phenomenal. It's a great pickup for Bellator. And at this point, you know, I'm sure you guys went over this. Him, Phil Davis, Nemkov, Bader, if he sticks around, Corey Anderson. There's some other names you can throw in there. Yeah, that's a very legitimate. Machida. Yeah, that's a legitimate 205-pound division by any measurement. So that's great. You know, he's got wins over the number one contender in UFC, knocked his teeth out in 13 seconds. You know, there's a bit of an open question after three years what he looks like, how good he can be. But it's probably a good gamble. He's exciting. He's uh, an action fighter. He's must-see TV because you just never know when he's going to sleep someone. You know, I can understand why Bellator would want to pick him up. And, you know, you're well. We'll see what happens with him. But at 44, maybe there's a different calculation for them because – uh, Rumble at 36 is still a little bit old, but not so old that um, he's not capable of you know fun, fun-filled action and uh, uh, attention. So it's a great signing by them, I think, by both parties. Yeah, can't wait to see. Uh, just can't wait to see it. That that's the deal on that. All right, let's move over to England this Saturday, Luke. Big time boxing, whether you're ready or not. On to zone. Three of the four recognized world heavyweight championship titles will be at stake when Anthony Joshua returns from a one-year layoff to take on the mandatory opponent, 38-year-old Kubrat Pulev. They were supposed to fight mandatorily, Luke, back in 2017. A shoulder injury to Pulev forced him out. Carlos Takam took his place. A lot has happened since then, including Anthony Joshua losing his titles by an upset knockout to Andy Ruiz and then being criticized for winning them back in a very safe 
boxing outside performance against a very fat man. Luke, uh, it's going to go down in Wembley Arena in front of a thousand fans on Saturday. Uh, Joshua, the rightful favorite, but how much should you know his critics or his fans fear the fact that he's in there against a live puncher and AJ's chin is what it is, Luke? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things you have to sort of. This is to me what this hinges on. Okay, one. If Andy Ruiz, I'm not saying he's not, not some kind of you know puncher to take seriously, but I'm saying if Andy Ruiz can do what he did to Joshua, at least the first time, in terms of if you land, what effect does it have? Granted, he wasn't able to do that the second time, I understand. We're just talking about the first one. Can Pulev do that? I, I don't see how you can argue he couldn't. He very much can have the same kind of an effect, assuming he can land. But of course, that leads now to the second point, which is, are you going to get the Joshua who was blood and guts and maybe, you know, got out in front of his skis in the first one. But, you know, the same one who got off the canvas in the Klitschko fight and managed to win it. That same kind of AJ. Or are you going to get the AJ in the rematch? The one who was very careful, very measured, very good boxing. I thought that fight was dreadful and boring, but super tactical, super smart, and exactly what he needed to do coming off of that devastating loss to his career. This is entirely what it hinges on, because if you ask yourself, if Pulev lands, can he have a devastating impact on Joshua, whose chin is not uh, exemplary? Of course he can, and if that's the case, then that dude is in trouble. But I also feel like AJ, if he chooses to do this, and my hunch is it's more the latter, BC. My hunch is that the one you saw against Ruiz, I'm not saying you're going to see that necessarily every time, but when he needs to pull it out, and here where there's still these lingering questions about who he is and blah, 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 you're absolutely going to see it. A thousand fans in Wembley are going to be treated to it. So uh, that's sort of what I'm expecting. I think you're going to get a Andy Ruiz 2 version, not an Andy Ruiz 1 version. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so here's the deal. Look, like performances that challenge your chin can change a guy. Watch the Hector Camacho great documentary on Showtime. You'll see that Edwin Rosario fight, sort of that that mountaintop of his prime run, even though he wanted it, changed Camacho. He didn't go after people anymore. He got, you know, defensive and, and, and passive. This isn't the first time, though, Joshua's chin had been checked before, right? Dillian White had rocked him in their fight, and obviously Klitschko had dropped him, and even Carlos Tackham in the first couple rounds kind of surprised him and pushed the pace. Um, here's the deal, though. So Pulev is very dangerous, and he's also 6'4 and a half. So he's a big dude. He's a Bulgarian. Look, he has just one career loss. It came against against Vladimir Klitschko in their 2014 title fight. And if you don't remember that fight, Pulev went after it. That was a time when we were seeing Klitschko out-jab random European guy after random European guy, and we were just like, man, if somebody just comes for Klitschko's chin, it could be different. Well, Pulev tried his best, man. I give him credit. He got knocked down three times, and in, or in round six, I believe it was, he got sent to freaking hell by Klitschko with a beautiful knockout on a left hook. Oddly enough, AJ was in Klitschko's camp at that time, just a few fights into his career, you know, helping Vlad prepare for Pulev. Since that loss to Klitschko, Pulev's like 8-0, and and I'll give him that credit. But, Luke, it's against, not... Against, against mostly nubbers. Again, uh, uh, not murderer's row. I mean, he, you know, he's outboxed a Derek Chisora. Uh, he outboxed, uh, you know, Tyson Fury's cousin, Huey, who's a decent fighter. But Samuel there's not Peter. killer on there. So... I believe that this fight will probably look a lot like that Klitschko fight in 2014. Because really? Pulev's, Pulev's going to come out looking to go for the knockout. He's going to come out being wild, maybe. Because AJ has the reach and size advantage, along with the speed, Luke, I believe, to outbox him from distance if he wants to. And I'll do it 
fairly safely. I think Pulev is going to have to step up the pace, get inside, try to have his moment, roll the dice, go for broke. But Luke, like Klitschko was able to do, Klitschko also had a size and power advantage. He was able to keep him on the outside, catch him coming in, and knock him the hell out. I think this fight could be fun in the first couple rounds, but I really like AJ to be forced, Luke, forced into not being the guy he was in the Ruiz rematch where he was able to box from the outside because Ruiz ate a lot of pizza, right? Ate a lot of chicken wings heading in. I think Pulev's going to try to cross that line and come in. And let's not forget one thing. AJ's a great finisher, dude. He can do it with both hands. He has great combinations. He's got a beautiful uppercut inside. If you run in on him and you challenge him, uh, Pulev does not have the hand speed that Andy Ruiz did. He does not have that same level of technique. He's a very good fighter. He's a credible out here. But I like AJ to... um, survive in advance and maybe look really good doing so. And Luke, here's the, here's the future timeline here. This is one mandatory. AJ also has another against former cruiserweight undisputed champion, Alexander Usyk. Um, Tyson Fury has a mandatory coming up against the winner of the Dillian White, Alexander Povetkin rematch. It's not out of the question, Luke, that we get the heavyweight fight that everybody really wants. Not Fury Wilder three, AJ Tyson Fury, all four belts, an undisputed champion. They'll probably do it in front of three million people stuck inside a Wembley Stadium. They might do it on the moon for all I know. If COVID's still going on, Luke, you and Fauci can buy it on pay-per-view. But that's the biggest fight you can make in boxing right now worldwide. I think we have a chance to get there either the end of 2021 if people are very busy or early 2022. There's no guarantee both guys get there, Luke, with their titles intact. But we don't get there unless AJ knocks this guy out. And I think he will on Saturday. You look very angry, Luke. What's going on? Well, good news, breaking news. Devison Figueredo makes 124 and a half on the scales, so he did it. No problem. Made weight with a little bit of room to spare on top of it. So that's the good news. The bad news is like, dude, it's like <laughs> your optimism about boxing. I'm not saying it's misplaced. I think probably your horizons are even correct. We'll get it at such and such a date, year or whatever. But it's like God, dude, you have to wait so... It's like going to the fucking DMV to be a boxing fan, you know? It's like you have to just it's wait like, for your number to call. It's like waiting not, on Chinese democracy by Guns N' Roses, Luke, okay? We're still waiting, all right? Are we still waiting on Ugh, that album? It's so, it's so off-putting. Yeah, it really is. But uh, heavyweight boxing is still fun. I'm here for it. I'll be watching on DAZN. I believe that's a 2 p.m. Eastern main card start. I don't know, 5 p.m. main event, something, whatever. Speaking Look, of DAZN, gotta... did you see this? The Bellator wasn't, is not on it anymore? Yes, I did see that. I did see uh, that. I don't know what that means, but it means something. Yeah, there's been a lot of, lot of, uh, lot of weird stuff going on lately, Luke. All right? But um, I love that... Uh, I don't know what I love anymore. I'm rambling. All right, Luke, let's get into boxing this weekend as well. We do want to shout out our folks at Showtime. They've got an interesting card this Saturday night from the Mohegan Sun Bubble. That is 9 p.m. Eastern, Luke. We're going to get Chris Primetime Colbert. I like to call him Chris Colbert. Uh, Luke, he's going for the... um, He's to be defending his interim WBA super featherweight champion. That's 130 pounds. He has had some fantastic knockouts, including one in which I think Ray Flores, the uh, PBC announcer, nearly nearly shot his wad on the call there, Luke. Had a raygasm. It was so spectacular. He'll be taking on hard-hitting Jamie Arbolita in this main event. Should be fun action. Triple header. Uh, Ronald Ellis missed weight. 
just a few minutes ago, by the way, by something like six pounds, but he's still looking to face Matt Korobov in the opener of the Showtime Boxing Special Edition triple header. I will be checking it out, our friends Mo Ronaldo and company there. Uh, Luke, also this Saturday, ESPN going to give us a guy we had on MK this week, Shakur Stevenson, your unbeaten uh, silver medalist in the Olympics a couple of year, years back, won a title at featherweight, has moved up to 130. He's going to take on somewhat of a live dog here in Toka Con Clary, but the whole oh, sort is of... Is he a live dog? Let's talk about that for a second, but go ahead. Well, the whole storyline here is that, you know, if Shakur looks great, survives and advances, he could be facing the winner of the Carl Frampton-Jamel Herring title fight at 130 that's going to happen in January. He could be facing Lomachenko for all we know, because Vasily... Some rumors say he wants to move back down to 130. Stevenson gave a stern warning on this podcast this week saying, don't do it, brother. Don't come down. I got, I'll finish you quicker than Teo did. Either way, Luke, you hear me talk about the, I don't know what we're going to call them. They're not the four kings, but they're the five young studs who are lifting up the future of the sport right now, right? Teofimo Lopez, Gervonta Davis, Ryan Garcia, Devin Haney. You best believe Shakur Stevenson is in that group of five, and I've said it for a long time. I think he is going to be the best of them from a pound-for-pound standpoint. There are some Floyd things, Floyd Mayweather things to like about this young fighter, Luke. Uh, he can knock people out in a in a parking garage. Oh, by the way, uh, too. Shout out to that moment. But um, yeah, I, I know you don't love Toko Conclary, but I do love Shakur Stevenson, and he's back, Luke. Yeah, Stevenson's great. Here, here's the problem with my enthusiasm for this, and I realize you know you're doing what you can if you're Bob Arum, but calling him a live dog. Uh, of all of the fights on the calendar at Pro Boxing Odds, which were December 11th, 12th, uh, let's see, 13th, 16th, 19th, 31st, January 1st, January 2nd, uh, and then even future events, which would include, you know, um, Tyson Fury and Agit or Agit Kabayel, he is the biggest underdog of all of them in any possible permutation. And by that, and, oh no, sorry, there's one that's more, just one. It's the donk fighting Edgar Berlanga, the guy who's got absolute fists of, uh, of, of steel. Toka Khan Clary is a plus 3,000 underdog, and some places have Shakur Stevenson, oh, and I'm not exaggerating, as high as minus 7,000. I don't think I've oh, ever God. seen that in, a, in an MMA fight. I literally don't think I've ever... Now, Berlanga is as high as minus 10,000 against Ulysses Sierra. So, boxing, Ulysses everybody. Ulysses S. Grant. Might as well be Grant's tomb. Yeah, all right. So, Togokon clearly is not going to win. But, Luke, I like the guy. He's been a fun fighter. He's had Freddie Roach sometimes as his trainer. He lives in Rhode Island. He comes to fight. Uh, but Stevenson's the real deal. Maybe this will be a showcase. Stay busy. By the way, there are a lot of top-ranked prospects on this card, including who you mentioned, Berlanga, the uh, super middleweight, I believe, prospect, who's, what, like 18-0 with 18 first-round KOs. Uh, and he's got, like, Snoop Dogg and Fat Joe on his side, too, Luke. He's, he's mm-hmm. something of a... Uh, Something like a phenomenon there. Um, also, Felix Verdejo, a lot of young guys on there. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But, Luke, you, you could get moved to the idea of Shakur Stevenson against um, Loma, against maybe Teo one day. Yeah, I mean, there's, of course. You know, there's- it's like, it's, dude, here's the problem. It's not that I don't want to see these guys fight at all. It's it's just how much filler and nonsense you have to go through to get anything yeah. that actually well, look, resembles. That's boxing. Look, it's not going to work for everyone. Okay, that's boxing, Luke. All right, it is what it is. Um, oh. by the way, Terrence Crawford tweeted two days ago, "F it, I'll move back down to 135." That's him being frustrated with the system, Luke. I don't think he could make that weight class again, but 
good God, there's a lot of big business to be had at 35, 40, 47. If they could ever make these fights, Luke, this boxing fan would be fired. Well, you know what? Good luck. You're going to get him in 2034. So stick around. All right. (laughs) Remember how long that gap? I know we get Star Wars movies every year now, Luke. Do you remember how freaking long that gap was between the Return of the Jedi and that Phantom Menace BS? That was like 30 years, it felt like. You know, yeah, and now it's here. now it's like they've you know we got we got a, a side Jar Jar Binks project where he goes and fucks everyone's mom. That'll be out on Disney Plus in the fall. You're like, God damn, we're gonna reprise that. Oh shit, is that an adult movie that you've been watching? Luke, what are you talking about here? Wow, all right, Misa Banks uh, to Mama. Yeah, <laughs> Misa, uh, <laughs> Misa, love you a long time. Oh, that's that's triple racist, Luke. Uh, that, I was dead wrong for that, Luke. I was dead wrong for that joke. So speaking of, why don't we get into your favorite subject, sub yes, segment let's of see, the week. Let's see what the donks have done this time. Let's see. Yeah, when we take hard L's for our mistakes, Luke. Uh, sorry, no social justice this week. Hopefully the uh, the reverend or the, the honorable, sorry, Luke Bader Ginsburg can be back next week. Uh, dead wrong this week, Luke. Uh, while talking about Kayla Harrison, who will be making a, uh, another return fight before the PFL starts coming up soon under the... Uh, uh, what the hell flag is she going to fight under now, Luke? Uh, well, she was Bulldog. in PFL and then Invicta. Yeah, but she's good. She's got a fight coming up in uh, uh, oh. in Affliction, Bodog, one of those. Yeah, some uh, some shit. I don't even know. Anyway, I had said that she had fought out of the PFL a couple months back in LFA. Turns out I was wrong. It was Invicta FC, Luke. So yes, I will take that L in mid motion. I screwed that up. But All Luke, right, that's not enough. the only. Yeah, that's not the only L I will take this week, Luke. Uh, In talking about uh, Brandon Moreno's interest this weekend in winning the UFC flyweight title for Mexico, the Tijuana native Luke trying to do what UFC has never been able to do, take a Mexican-born or Mexican-American superstar, put a title on them, and really have them change to a degree, the culture in Mexico, which is such a boxing-based culture, and get it into MMA. It did not work with Cain Velasquez, Luke. Brown Pride, okay? And it did not work with Eric Silva? No. I was dead wrong there, Luke. Eric Silva's from Brazil. I was talking about Eric Perez, who used to wear... Yeah, he used to wear the luchador mask. He fought for UFC and then Bellator and basically everybody else, including wherever Kayla Harrison's fighting next. Um, Luke, there was a short season, I don't know if you remember, where he was like, maybe UFC's got something here, a Mexican-born dude who can bring in the fans, right? Yeah, it turns out he wasn't. Uh, I think, I I could be wrong about this. I think he's, and again, I'm telling you, I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure he's in Combate Americas. I think he's around there or someplace, like... Okay, that's fine. Hanging out. Yeah, Yeah, maybe. (laughs) All right, uh, Luke, we got one more L this week, and it's from you. Um, Luke, you mentioned that great Twitter exchange in which Dana wrongfully sent you to hell and then as a as a reward for being wrong, did come on your radio show, right? You had mentioned that it happened in 2006. Luke, I don't even think MMA was around in 2006. I know Twitter certainly wasn't. Uh, you were talking about a 2014 exchange between yourself and the no, UFC president. that is not correct. That is not correct. Well, okay. I would have guessed 2011, right? right. I Here's guessed why that's... Okay, this is, this is why this segment is letting me down consistently. It is true that Dana went after me. Dana has been telling me for 15 years he doesn't care about my opinion. It's like, do you not care or do you care the most? I think it's the latter. 
But in the case of the 2014 one, he just lashed out at me, but there was no interview that came from it. Now, I don't think it was in 2006. I think it was closer to 2008 or 9 BC, back when my original handle was at MMA Nation. That was my first uh, like Twitter name. He went after me there for misreading a comment. And I was uh, the reason why this is relevant is because the show he came on was my very first radio show on 106.7 The Fan WJFK here in Washington, D.C. But that show ended in 2012, and it was very early on in the run where he came on. So definitely not 2014 and probably not 2006 either, probably 2008 or 2009. But he didn't apologize for the one in 2014. He just wrote it out. The one he apologized for was that first one back when I was running Bloody Elbow because he misinterpreted what I said. And it was actually Bo Dorr who worked at USA Today that intervened on my behalf that got him to apologize. And then he came on. But in 2014, he just sent me to hell and that was the end of it. So once again, once again, the listeners just letting me down. Well, I got two things to say. One, it's very possible, Luke, that this segment is a sham and just a setup to get you angry, which I'm all for. <laughs> Number two, I have done a little Twitter research. Tweet, Twitter research. Uh, June fifteenth, two thousand ten, at nine forty six p.m., Dana White tweeted at MMA Nation and L Thomas News and said, "Yes, since I was a dick by mistake, contact Jen Wenke. Did you contact the Wenke, Luke? I did. Well, Jen Wank. I did contact Jen Wank, who uh, still works in the industry, who <laughs> was unfavorable. who Jen Wank. Every time I had a business dealing with her, went out of her way to be as awful as possible to me. Um, although she did manage to set this interview up, and actually, the interview I did with Dana at the time was great. It was actually a great interview. Um, I think that's the last time I've had an interview <laughs> an interview with him. It's been about. 10 years so there you go oh i see it luke so it was that same day june 15th 2010 you tweeted how is the most successful mma promoter on the planet inept and dana thought you were calling him inept and he said you shouldn't even respond to this douche who doesn't know shit about the sport mma nation question mark what the f and then luke you had a legion of people come out to defend you wow this was uh, the old wild wild west on twitter okay yeah this was back this was back in the day so that's what happened he he had misread it and it led to that opportunity which was fine um but you know four years later you know dana and i have never quite seen eye to eye he doesn't quite understand the role of semi-adversarial media but that's okay i've had my fun bc i've had my day and now it's time for someone else to get sent to hell luke who do you think wank's favorite table tennis star is there's gonna be a is it dong dong (laughs) (laughs) sorry not table tennis trampoline trampoline gymnastics luke do you think it's a chinese trampoline gymnast dong dong who was an olympian by the way luke uh i don't know i don't know I don't know. All right, this show is off the rails. It was, uh, uh, speaking- dude, uh, back, back in the day, folks don't realize this. Like the UFC PR people now, BC, I think we can agree to this. Yeah. I have found them to be very friendly, very accommodating, uh, hardworking, you know, and I'm not just doing a bit here. Like they really are. Chris Costello is great. I don't know Love a lot him. of the other ones on a very Nobby. closer level than Nobby's the best. Come on, Nobby's big the Nobby best. Guy yeah, here. she's great as well. She's awesome. Um, it didn't used to be that way. Back in the days when Jen Wank was working there, it was not great to deal with him. And there was another Back one the- who, uh, her initials were DB, I won't say her name, who was absolutely the most awful person in America when she worked there. She doesn't work there anymore, um, DB. But at the time, wow, they were shout not out, fun. Shout out to Dave Lockett as well. Not a DB at all. Dave Lockett okay, so, is great. Uh, yes, Dave Lockett's great the as well. Dunk- mm-hmm. 
Things were different in the Dong Dong era. But uh, speaking of tips, Luke, it's time for our uh, fun weekly segment that we close Fridays with, my friend. It's called Tip to Tip. Just the tip. Just for a second. Just to see how it feels. So, Luke, here's the idea of this segment, if you don't know. It's us just giving a recommendation, a shout-out, advice, a tip of the cap to someone or something in combat sports and beyond. Luke, do you want to go first here, friend? Sure, I will go first. So if you guys haven't been paying attention, and this happens to have bipartisan, I won't say consensus, but certainly bipartisan momentum, there is a lot of interest in breaking up uh, big tech. And I think that's going to extend beyond just big tech. But you've seen the Justice Department, who is now going to be suing, uh, they are suing Google, uh, Facebook as well. There was a big suit that was announced about it. There's a ton of interest in breaking them all up. And um, I thought to myself, well, what's a good thing to read that's not too long? It's only, let's see, about 140 pages or so. Or so. Uh, very, very small and it help you understand. I've recommended this before, but I want to re-recommend it because folks always ask me, what's a good thing to read to help us understand why you would want to break some of these things up? By the way, UFC you know, has certainly uh, been getting class action uh, sued against them, although I don't think they're threatening to break it up, but certainly change the business. In any event, here's a great book to read. This is uh, the curse. Of the uh, the curse. Can you see it? The curse of bigness. I'll put it here by Tim. <laughs> you sure that's not the uh, Rocco's autobiography, Luke? <laughs> no, the curse of bigness by Tim Wu. Tim Wu was a former Supreme Court clerk. This is the guy that invented the term net neutrality. He's a professor at the law school in Columbia University. He just understands the nature of uh, industry consolidation and then what it means to break it all up. I read a couple of his previous books, but the one more important than this one for that was The Master Switch, where he essentially talked about in technology, there's always this new medium that is invented, radio, television, internet. And when it happens, there's this massive boom of innovation and all these players in the marketplace, and it's great for consumers. But over time, there happens to be consolidation. The only way to repair that and get back to a state that is much more innovative-friendly and better for the consumers is when it gets too consolidated to break it up. This is not about tech per se, but about industry consolidation more importantly, um, more specifically, I should say. But if you're trying to understand where it appears bipartisan consensus is headed on not just big tech, but industry consolidation in the world in which we live, where there's only a handful of industry uh, or uh, airlines or telecom companies or you name it, this will help you get there. The Curse of Bigness by Tim Wu. Go read it. Wow, this guy Tim Wu talking about Borafil. Okay, I'll check it out, Luke. Maybe I can get woke to things like Monopska Keys and uh, Park Place and <laughs> Boardwalk and uh, all that stuff. All right. Hey, Luke, uh, look, you know, my kids always ask me. It's the holiday season, and they, dude, they love themselves. Some Elf, some Home Alone. They're always like, Dad, what's your favorite Christmas movie? And, Luke, I don't have, like, a go-to. Like, I really like, you know, those Claymation favorites, like the Rudolph one that we all love and, and uh, Jack Frost, the Clay version. I always thought that was a very... Uh, uh, one you know good one but i don't have that like die hard or that go-to one so i started really thinking about it and i'm gonna come out of the closet on a guilty pleasure it might be my favorite christmas movie of all time and you might laugh at me luke but i'm nostalgic and i don't care 2007's romantic comedy called holiday in handcuffs i don't know if you've ever seen this piece <laughs> of holiday business it debuted on i believe it was called abc family back then i remember the first year watching it with my wife when we were newlyweds 
It stars AC Slater and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And Luke, it's a freaking hilarious holiday Christmas movie. And I don't care what you think about it. I want you, Abuela, your lovely wife, Uncle PP, everybody to gather around the TV and celebrate and watch it this year. It's hilarious. I show it to my family members and they laugh out loud. It's just a feel-good annual Campbell family tradition. Do we have any pictures? Manich, do we have any footage here? No. No? We got any footage of your rap? Oh, no footage. Sorry, sorry. Good, good thing I gave this in advance so that we can grab the footage from it. Um, Luke, uh, it's a very fun holiday movie. And look, I mean, A.C. Slater's involved. You know, there's a, you know, he gets kidnapped. I mean, it's, it's you know, all right. That's my tip. Did you see week, that okay? he's in a KFC-inspired, like, romance movie? Um, yes. Yes, I Mario have. Lopez? I have, not looked, I have not looked too deep into that, and I have not watched the Say by the Bell reboot series yet have you looked luke mm, have you no i'll say in my house when christmas is on the two movies that get the widest rotation are elf and bad santa those are our two go-tos here not bad not bad uh why i watched uh christmas vacation with with the kids for the first time the other night it was it was a uh, it was a rousing success luke okay you hard, big, hard to go wrong with chevy chase yeah i mean come on it's it's automatic there oh uh, luke i wanted to shout out, i found this weird t-shirt here uh Greetings from Tatooine in my drawer this morning, Luke, okay? And I've been thinking, Luke, you know you know me, Luke. I come from a, a factory town. I come from Naugatuck, Connecticut, which is, you know, in a lot of ways, the industrial armpit of this rich and snobby state. It's the Tatooine, Luke, right? You know what I mean? Like, like, like the Bible said, what good could come from Nazareth besides the savior of the world? Luke, I feel like Morning Combat was kind of like the Tatooine of, of this solar system to start off, right? And now it's kind of like this desert, you know, band of scoundrels here at uh, Mos Eisley Spaceport is the place to be out of nowhere. Luke, I feel good about wearing this, right? Very I don't think that's the right analogy at all. We didn't start out as Tatooine. Like, we had... Dude, like, <laughs> I've been in Tatooine in my career in places. Morning combat ain't that. Like, our bosses liked us. Um... They cared about our success. <laughs> they wanted to promote us. That ain't Tatooine, bro. That's more like the Endor Moon. Well, Luke, speaking of that, Luke, why do you look like my father, Luke? There, there is an absolute 100% chance you have tried to bang a girl with that on. My father was not from Doha. Luke. Come with me, and together we can rule the combat sports galaxy as Dude, father how, and co-host. How, how big is that helmet that your fucking melon fits in there? Luke, you look like my father. <laughs> All right, that's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. Okay, that's it. I, got, I don't have any more props, that's it. All right. That's fucking uh, great. Where'd you get that? I want one of those. My kids, you know, we buy, we spend all this money on toys for the kids. They never use them. They end up in my office, Luke. Every single, every single one of them. All right, Luke, okay. That's what it's about. I, I buy that my daughter really all this stuff, and she just cares about the. She's like my cat. She's like, oh, I like the box that it came in. It's like, okay, exactly. Right, you know, I'll, uh, if it's not Fortnite these days, Luke, what is it? Right? You know. Uh, by the way, breaking news: Brandon Moreno also makes weight one hundred twenty-four point five. Your main event, assuming no one has COVID, 
is official. There we go, buddy. There I'm in. we go. I'm down. Uh, please check out all of our content on the Morning Combat YouTube channel. Please like this video, subscribe, all that good stuff. Shout out to it's a holiday season, Luke. Whatever you're celebrating, right? Jay and his tribe. Shout out to them for Hanukkah. No doubt. Uh, enjoy the holiday. Be safe, guys. Okay. Check us out on social. There's our, our handles. Of course, the uh, Morning Combat at gmail.com is where you can send your uh, fan submissions, your artwork, your all that stuff. Luke, that we had some fan freaking fantastic fan submissions on wednesday follow us on social media uh let, let's take let's take care let's take care of our brain look i heard a very good interview i want to shout it out more moro ronaldo who we love from showtime was on the showtime boxing podcast with raskin and mulvaney this past week and they did a bit they did a long thing on mental health and you know hanging in there through the quarantine it was uh it was inspiring it was it was great stuff so a shout out to those guys luke even you a pillar of strength and individualism even you need to check yourself once in a while and make sure you're doing okay it's tough times out there luke okay it certainly is but i have nothing to complain about um again that was so funny it was like people were like oh did you go to a job interview i'm like you know what man for the first time in my career i've said this too i said this yesterday in my chat this is the first time in my career bc since i graduated college i've had one job this is my first time as an adult i've had one job and it's so far been maybe the best one i've had on top of it uh Wow, so wow, I don't have any Luke. desire to go anywhere. I'm trying to build this thing and make it. I want to make it. Uh, uh, you know, what's the best place to be in the in the Star Wars universe? I don't even know the answer to that, but wherever that no, is, no, no. Not- let, let's hit that right there because Corellia? look. The green moon of Endor is, I mean, you can go to an Ewok party. It's fantastic, right? They'll, 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 and they burn their dead too, which is interesting. Um, I always thought, where was that place that um, Padme grew up on? It was just lush and beautiful, right? Yeah, We're, yeah. Corellia was the shitty one that Han grew up on. So forget that. Yeah, that's Coruscant, where he got that was shit. It Coruscant, pretty good. No, that's Coruscant was like the government center. Very beautiful, big buildings. There, there was that okay. uh, at the end of the Phantom Menace. There was that uh, Gungan party that you know they had and they rocked out. Oh in. right, right, I, right, right. I forgot the name of where Padme was from. That was like Rolling Hills. Remember they they went in the grass and in yeah. that dirt hole. Uh, Anakin, <laughs> you know. How, how did he get her, Luke? I mean, seriously, in storyline, like, come on, right? Well, is when it, you're Darth Vader, you know, we, we've always said on my radio show that when it existed, Darth Vader is probably more likely to cuck all the neighbors than any other person in, in you know, human history. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not the least bit surprised that he did some dirt hole things like that. But, uh, yeah, dude, like, I, I have nothing to complain about. I have nothing to complain about. So, I wonder Except if Darth my hair was... being, you know, a disaster and uh, everything else, yeah. but I can't do anything. That's not that's not MK's fault, and MK can't fix that, so that's what it is. Darth wasn't Corellian. Uh, yeah, because Anakin grew up in Tatooine, Luke. I wonder if, though, if Anakin was very Sephredian, uh, and that's why it was a, you know he was able to secure uh, government royalty like Padme so easily, Luke, right? Well, Padme's planet was Naboo. Was it Naboo? Naboo. Naboo is that. Naboo is basically like uh, Washington State. Look, my dream is to go to Washington State. I follow uh, Bill and Jen's RV adventure on Instagram. Big fans of our show. They're just show. They're just dropping beautiful. Luke, the Pacific Northwest. That's Naboo. I want to be there. Okay. I feel you. I've never been out to Seattle or Oregon, but I hear it's phenomenal. And uh, you can go whale watching. You know, breath of fresh air in the forest. Get a good cup of Joe. Maybe go you fight. Can spark a Jay, downtown. Luke. Yeah, yeah, it's great, you know. Um, anything else you want to shout out here, Luke? We're just, you know, we're just, we're just lingering, okay? Uh, we will have so. USC two fifty six coverage tomorrow. We're not exactly sure what for, uh, format it will take, but be on the lookout for that. So, yeah, tons of stuff coming your way this weekend. Don't go anywhere. <coughs>
All right. Uh, wear a mask, wash your friggin' hands, and um, thank you to Showtime Malco, CBS Sports, and thank you to you folks. Uh, we don't have anything without you, okay? So thank you for uh, following our work. I know this. sometimes this relationship is very give, right? And you receive, but your uh, subscriptions, your likes, all that, it gives back to us in so many ways. So thank you for wearing our merch and all that. Uh, all that and then some tall, pale, and handsome. It's your boy BC signing off for the great Luke Thomas. Who? I, come on. You know, we we sling jokes left and right, but who am I without Luke Thomas's fan base and his, uh, you know, and Will his, you stop? And his... Will you stop? Will you stop? I mean, come it's on, a mutual okay? effort. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a zero and a one, the binary code. You got to have both for it to work. Luke, I'm kind of the sweater to your Cosby, right? No. Uh, no, you are none the, of those things. We are the roofie to the... your Cosby. <laughs> <laughs> you might be that. You might be All that. All right. Uh, For Luke Thomas and all of his loyal gains, I'm Brian Campbell signing off. This is Morning Combat, and we got two words for you, folks. We out. Yeah.